Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. It's good to be. Um, it's good to be back with you. Finally, settling for us after a very chaotic summer. Catherine and uh, the kids are still not quite here. We're supposed to be closing on a house on Tuesday, so they'll come for that. And so next week we'll be even more settled. This week we were uh, trying to think, though, together of how many places we've, we've slept in since moving out of Wheaton and the time that we're going to finally move into Sycamore. The list was quite extensive. So it included, from the time we left here, last time we were in Sycamore, it included a truck stop on Route 80, included my parents' house on at least three different occasions, uh, two planes, a dorm room in the Netherlands, a house we rented for a month, uh, a car in Iceland, our minivan, a cabin up in New York. It included Catherine's brother's house, her sister's house, her parents' house. <laughs> now I've been at the Lewis's for the last couple nights after spending a night back in Wheaton at a pastor's house, and we still have a few days to go. <laughs> you can understand how excited we are to finally settle down into a community, and more than that, settle into a new family. I was coming into the office for the first time the other day, and Kevin was there, and just saying that he's looking forward to living life together, and that's very much our feelings as well, looking forward to living life together. And yet, and yet, if there's ever been a time in our lives that we've been reminded as a family that this world holds no lasting home, it's been over the course of these last few months. And I imagine for any of us, right, who settle down or put down roots, that there's enough of a reminder in this world that we are no longer in Eden. Amen? From a kitchen that was newly remodeled and now is in need of a handyman, or a car you thought you were getting a deal on but just quit, or a relationship that had so much potential to flourish but all it's done is flounder for the doctor's visit that you just found out that you, once again, are no longer in control of your life. Or if it's a kid who saved up for a toy and that toy is now under your bed, broken, collecting dust. It's not hard to become convinced that we're no longer in Eden. And yet, for us, even this summer, it was a time that as much as we were reminded that we were no longer there, it's times like that, and it was a time like that this summer, that we were in the most need of looking at a picture of that land once again. As counterintuitive as that sounds, that when we know we have lost the home that humanity is made for, it's at that moment that we're in need of looking at that picture again. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to start doing that today, and over the next two weeks, we're going to do just that, looking first today at that paradise before it was lost, 
and then next week at that paradise regained. And we'll be looking at the two bookends of the Bible, as it were, starting today by looking at Genesis chapter 2. So if you have a Bible with you and you want to flip there or turn there or swipe there, Genesis chapter 2, I'm going to start by reading it, Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 to 25. And this is God's word. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not yet caused it to rain on the land. And there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life that is in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Before we look more closely at this passage, just pray with me again that God would grant us understanding of his word. Heavenly Father, we're about to look at your account of the beginning of your world. 
And our tendency and the tendency of our times is to rewrite that story as we see fit. But we're coming to hear from you. Because only you have the right to tell us what those beginnings were all about. So we come and we ask that you would guide us and show us what you mean for us to see. That we might see your purpose for your world. That we might better reflect that purpose in our lives today. And may we see Jesus. Even here before the world fell and before humanity needed to be saved or seemingly was in need of a Savior. It's in the name of the one we've come to know as Savior that we pray. Amen. Well, I, I feel as um, your new pastor, I feel like we're at the beginning of a relationship where uh, it would be good if you knew a few things about me from the outset, so as we could establish some level of trust between us. We're going to be walking in some level of intimacy in the coming days. And so there are a few things you should know. You should know. (laughs) Not everything. I'm not telling you everything. (laughs) But you should know that I am both a, a huge fan of both George Lucas and of Steven Spielberg. But I am an even bigger fan of when George Lucas, the creator of Star Wars, and Steven Spielberg, the one who popularized the notion of extraterrestrials phoning home, I am an even bigger fan when these two cinematic geniuses come together to create a film of cosmological proportions. And in the fall, of 1988, when I was just two years old, they did just that. They came together and from their combined geniuses, they released a blockbuster hit that has since spawned a staggering 13 sequels. Star Wars has ever since been trying to keep up. They released in the fall of 1988 a film entitled, The Land Before Time. (laughs) Do you remember it? Uh, The sequels, George Lucas, Steven Spielberg had nothing to do with those. But do you remember the original? You remember it? Blockbuster hit took the box office by storm. And I remember that film. It's a story of a young dinosaur named Littlefoot. Littlefoot is what's called a long neck, an apatosaurus. But the sad part of the story is that early on in the film, Littlefoot is orphaned. And to make matters worse, he's not only lost his mom and dad, but is facing along with the entire prehistoric population a terrible drought. So that if he stays where he is when you meet him at the beginning of the film, he's either going to be fried by the sun or fried up as some other dinosaur's dinner. But it's in the midst 
It's in the midst of all that hurt that Littlefoot remembers the stories his grandparents used to tell him of what they called the Great Valley, a land that had been preserved from the pain, a land before time. And as the movie unfolds, it becomes clear that the story of this land before time will drive Littlefoot to one of two ends. It will either drive him to tears at the agony of this land's loss, or it will drive him to hope as he seeks it once again. And I think for us, the story of Eden has the potential of doing very much the same. It can drive us to tears or to seek it once again. And though read through the present brokenness of our world, we may think Eden presents us merely with a reason to weep. I don't think that's what Moses ever ever meant it for. Moses, who penned this story, sitting somewhere between slavery in Egypt and salvation in a promised land, didn't take the time to paint this picture merely to make us mourn over its loss, but to set us searching for the day this land before time would be ours. In that promised land that we ought to be headed for. And to do it, to whet our appetite for Eden. Moses presents in our passage this land before time as a land before judgment, as a land before separation, as a land before death, and as a land before shame. And we're going to walk with him through this passage to see just this. And we'll start by looking with Moses at this land before time as a land before judgment. Look again with me at verses 4 to 7. And let me, let me point something out that is regularly missed by those of us who, with all good intentions, get overly wrapped up at defending God's Word at the cost of rightly reading it. Something I often find myself stumbling into, trying to defend God's Word and Because of that, misreading what it says, forcing it where it wasn't meant to go, and not seeing what it does say. So look at verses 4 to 7. It says in verse 4 that these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not yet caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And when you read this statement, if you're all familiar with these opening chapters of Genesis and you're anything like others who care deeply about this book, I imagine that you've found yourself trying to figure out how this account here in Genesis 2 fits with Genesis 1. You ever done that? You ever tried to figure it out? And you run into all sorts of conundrums. Because after all, we're told in Genesis 1 that in six days God created the world and that by day three the earth had sprouted forth vegetation of all kinds is what it says. But now we're back to empty fields before the bushes and small plants had yet sprung up. And you've got to ask yourself, what gives? 
What gives? But what I wanted to see is that when Moses is talking here about bushes of the field or small plants of the field or just fields in general, he's not talking about the field in which God planted, but the field in which humanity would be condemned to plant. A field that that we would plow by the blood of our brows and by the sweat of our veins. Because the plants here in Genesis 2 are those that only come after the ground is cursed in Genesis 3. They're very particular words. They're the thorns and the thistles of this world. And Moses is saying that there was once a land in which such weeds weren't part of the landscape. You know, it says, for the Lord God had not yet caused it to rain on the land. Not because God hadn't yet figured out his water cycle. It's because this was a land before Noah. This was a land before the flood. That's what rain was. It was before the waters of heaven were used to baptize the earth, to cleanse it of its wickedness. Because this was a land before judgment. It says that, There was no man to work the ground at that time. And a a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. And then into that land, the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. You see, Eden is a picture of what once was. But for Moses, sitting under some rock, leading a people out of slavery into salvation... Eden wasn't just a picture of what once was, but a picture of what would be again, of what could be. Because Moses wasn't just leading, he was following. And he wasn't just following anyone, he was following the same God who had promised his people the land that they were going into. And who was big enough and powerful enough and good enough to make that land the home they had lost so long ago. Writing in the middle of the brokenness, Moses was saying to the people of God that the thorns and thistles that so defined their existence would someday not define their existence anymore. Because looking back, he was in fact looking forward. It was a land before judgment. But even more specifically, it was second, a land before separation. Look at verse 8. It says, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God had created a vast and wild world. It was untamed and uncultivated and unkempt in all its raw splendor. But there was, in in the midst of that world, a place that was different. A place that had been in some sense domesticated. A place that God himself had made his home. 
You know, my mom, as a kid, on, during Saturday morning chores, she would always say that a home is not a home until you've touched every corner. That here was a place. Here was a place where God had touched every corner. A corner of the world. He had made his own. A garden that God himself had planted. It was where he began the work of, of bringing his wild world under his dominion. And into this place where we're later told that God would walk in the cool of the day, God placed his man right there, right next to him, right in God's own home. So that what Moses is saying when he wrote the story of Eden wasn't just that there was a land before judgment, but a land before judgment's worst consequence. That there was a land before separation. For 40 years, imagine this, for 40 years, Moses wandered in the desert writing the books of the law, of which Genesis is one, round and round and round again. And he writes of Eden to say that there was a time we weren't wandering. There was a time we weren't on the outside of where we were supposed to be. And that though we're on the outside now, this is not where we were made for. And more than that, that if only we turn back to the one we originally turned from, he will bring us back to where we belonged from the beginning. Because that's what the promised land was all about. Not a land that we would again make our own, but a land that was God's own. A land flowing with milk and honey but that more importantly had God dwelling in its midst. It says out of the land we're told in verse 10 that a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers, the Pishon, the Gihon, the Tigris, and the Euphrates. Because this was a place from which the whole earth was and would be and was meant to be Blessed. This was Eden. It was a land before judgment. It was a land before separation. Third, it was a land before death. If, if separation from God is judgment's worst consequence, death is surely judgment's final end. It's, it is separation brought to its logical conclusion. But in this picture, we see that Eden wasn't a place marked by death, but by life. As early as verse 7, we read that God breathed into the man the breath of life. And then in verse 8, it says that the tree of life was in the middle of the garden. But it's in verse 15 that this contrast between life and death really comes becomes the focal point of the chapter. It says there that the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it, and apparently to expand it until it would encompass the whole earth. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. 
For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. In the day, in that day, you shall surely die. A death that we now know was not simply physical, but even more so spiritual and ultimately eternal. Because when you take God's throne for yourself, death reigns where life should have. It is one of the guiding principles of our world. You take God's throne for yourself and death reigns where life should have. And that's where it was from the beginning. In that day you shall surely die. And for Moses, sitting somewhere between the Red Sea and the River Jordan, the weight of such a statement could not have been more pronounced. He's already watched the Egyptians drown. You remember the story? He's already drowned an Egyptian himself in the sand. And now he's trekking through the wilderness as an entire generation of his own people is left lying in a, as a trail of corpses in his wake. This is a man that knows the heartache of death. And yet it's Moses. It's Moses who has the audacity to write of a land where death hadn't yet had its way. And my question from the outside looking in, and a question that I hope you have and don't just disregard, is how could he? How could he? How could he, in the midst of our world, where our loved ones die daily, and we live our lives in such estrangement from God, and we barricade ourselves from God's presence every opportunity we get, and our world is so broken, and it's so evident that we are so unable to fix it, and where it's only ever thorns and thistles. How could he tell us of Eden? I've shared this with some of you already in the last couple days. My grandmother's 91 years old. 91 years old. Ten years ago, she lost my grandfather just a few months before our wedding. She's lost since her siblings. She watched her parents die, her friends die, her neighbors die. Three of her grandchildren die. And two weeks ago, when she was supposed to be heading to the rehearsal dinner to celebrate new life, she fell and broke her hip that had been replaced only a month or so before, and she left the home that she has lived in for 90 years to be taken to a hospital from which she will be transported to a nursing home where she will spend the rest of her life waiting to die. How could he, in the midst of a world that is so marked by death and separation and judgment that we deserve, tell us of a land before time?
more than just tell us of a land before judgment and separation and death. How could he tell us of a land before shame? Can't dwell on it too long. This is the final piece of this picture. For the first time, we're told that something is not good in God's creation and that it's not good for man to be alone. That he needs a helper. And when no helper can be found among the creatures that God already created, he, he, he takes a part of the man and makes for him a helper fit. A helper that Adam will declare is bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh, with whom, the text says, he is naked and yet not ashamed. When is the last time that shame hasn't lurked in the shadows of your life? Reminding you of the death and the separation and the judgment you deserve. The shame with your wife or your husband or with anyone made of the same stuff as you, let alone the God that made you. I mean, you look around. We spend our lives hiding from one another. We spend our lives trying to cover up the nakedness and running from the threat of being exposed and known for what we know we are. It's one thing to say that for a moment you forget the shame. It's a massively more significant thing to say that they were naked and consciously unashamed. That is something left to myself, in and of myself, I do not know. There's a reason that we can both hate and, and pity characters like Tolkien's Gollum, damned to his shameful self. Because we see in them a reminder of us. We see in them something we know we are, or at least we were. And naked and unashamed is not it. So how does Moses dare to tell us of a land so different from our own? Of a land before time, of a land before judgment, before separation, before death, and before shame. Because he was not meaning for us to see Eden only as a land that once was, but as a land that would be again. Because he wanted his words to be remembered by all who would look around and know that the land in which they live is not the land for which they were made, nor in which forever they would have to dwell. He wanted his words to be remembered, not to drive us to tears, but like Littlefoot, to drive us to seek it once again. I think Moses tells us of Eden so that we can see, perhaps for the very first time, that the God we serve is the God who made all things good and is in the business of making them good again. You know, it's fascinating that the imagery of planting and the language of the garden becomes in the Bible 
one of the central ways of speaking of the work of God in God's world. If you flip through the pages of Scripture in your mind, can you see that? One of the central ways of speaking about what God does in God's world. After Eden, the language of the garden doesn't refer to something ever again that God planted way back when. Eden isn't mentioned much. Adam only comes in one genealogy in Chronicles. It becomes, though, his way of referring to what he would do again. When the Bible talks about the promised land, it, it, it talks about God's people being planted there in a garden. Interestingly enough, going out of their way, right? It's not the direct route, but going out of their way so that they could enter the land from the east so that they could take the way back that Adam and Eve took out. The promised land, Eden restored. And in the midst of that land would stand the temple so that God would again be in their midst with its vines woven on the curtains and, and food displayed on the table and the tree of life represented in, in, in a lampstand. And when Israel is exiled, the prophets begin to talk of a day that they will be replanted again, a day that does not come when they return to the land that is not satisfied upon their return because they're still whispering about a day still to come because it's a day that is only made possible when God paves the way and puts the pathway down through the death of his son. God is in the business of replanting Eden and he's made it possible through Jesus. And that's where you and I come into the story. That's how we fit into God's plans for the restoration of Eden. I only just suggest three ways that we fit into the story. First, we fit into God's plans of replanting Eden when God plants his word in our hearts. Okay, we fit into the story when God plants his word in our hearts. He created this world by his word, Genesis 1, right? He created it by his word. He recreates it by his word. And whether in a moment or over a period of time, God uses his word as the story of the gospel that climaxes in the work of his son, Jesus Christ, he uses that to bring us back to Eden, that our lives would be a place where God has touched every corner, that he would again have dominion on earth in you. It's our first taste of home. When our hearts are touched and we see the brokenness for what it is and recognize Jesus as our only hope of returning to the home we were made for, and the question is, is that how you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? And don't assume. My grandfather who passed away gave me a spelling laugh, a lesson once. He said, never assume anything. He said, because when you assume, 
You make an ass of you and me. Assume. I never got that wrong on a spelling test again. <laughs> Don't assume that you know Jesus. Do you know Jesus? And do you know him by the planting of God's word in your heart? God plants his word in our hearts. But we further fit into the story when God plants us in his world. A lot of the imagery here in the Bible of planting actually comes to a head in the teaching of Jesus. Can you hear it? The sower went out to sow and planted the word of God and some fell among the path and some fell on the rocky ground and others fell among the thorns and still others on good soil. Yet a parable later, Jesus talks not of the sowing of the word of God but of the sowing of the sons of God, the sons of the kingdom. Because God plants his word in our hearts that he might plant us in his world. And in that, Eden is not just established anew, but extended afar. So each of us has been planted by God in a particular place at a particular time for a particular purpose. Your job, your home, your favorite coffee place, your softball team, whatever it is, there are, these are ends to be enjoyed, but they are also means to God's end. To not only plant His Word in our hearts and plant us in His world, but thirdly, that we might plant His Word in the hearts of others. One of the most beautiful truths of God's redemptive plans is that we who have experienced God's grace in the person of Jesus Christ, who have been sown with good seed, are then sown as good seed so that then we can be about the business of sowing good seed in the hearts of others. We become miraculously instruments for overcoming the very brokenness we once lived in and that furthermore we once perpetuated for bringing people back to the God they were made for. So the question is, where has God planted you? And into whose heart are you uniquely situated to plant the word of God? Now, for many of us, that begins at home. But unfortunately, for many of us, that's where it stops. And I want to challenge you, even this week, to identify one person, one person who you're pretty sure has no clue who Jesus is. And I want you to pray for that person tonight. And I want you to partner up with somebody so you can, you can talk about this. And then I want you to talk about it in your home groups. I want you to identify one person who has no clue who Jesus is, pray for them tonight, and by tomorrow have either asked them or figured out how you're going to ask them to lunch or over for a play date or for a meal at night, and you could do it as a family, you could do it as an individual, but who are you going to have over so that you can not only learn their story, but then think about how you can drive them to Jesus' story? One person. 
one person, one meal, one play date, who are you going to share Jesus with? And this is not about getting into heaven. This is not about getting right with God. But if this is something that doesn't work in your life, you've got to ask yourself, do you know the Jesus you should be talking about? Because that's what people do when they know Jesus. They share him with others. One person. And don't worry if it doesn't work this week. Next week, you can ask him again. And you can do it until God breaks them with the gospel. Or they kick you out. And then you find somebody else. I've been reading recently the biography of William Wilberforce this week. I picked it up at somebody's house. It was lying on a desk. They said they were done with it. I took it. It was on the bus with me. I'm finishing it up maybe tomorrow. One of the points in this book that I've been most impressed with, though, that in the midst, William Wilberforce is the character who is responsible for the abolition of the slave trade in England and really for the slave trade worldwide, even slave trafficking today. His impact is still felt. But one of the things I was most impressed with reading this book was a point in the biography where the author stopped talking about the years and years and years of struggling to abolish the slave trade and just in a paragraph talked about William Wilberforce's intentionality to share the gospel with those who God put around him. And he would think to himself, how can I do this in a unique way, in a personal way, that's going to hit this guy's life? And the guys he was sharing with were some of the most powerful men in the world. Now, you may not have the chance to share Christ with King George. And that's okay. But for those of us who have come to know Christ as King, this ought to be the hallmark of our lives, of sharing him with those we can. So one person, one person. And that's how we seek Eden, become a part of what God's doing to restore it. And next week, we'll look at God's plan to finally do it once for all. Let me pray as the worship team comes back up. Would you join me? Dear God, it's a wonder. It's a wonder to us that you would even wait around to replant Eden after we so ruined it ourselves. But let it be so. For your glory and for our good and for the good of every person that you put in our lives. And as we look to Jesus, our hope of it being restored once and for all, we ask we would taste it even now. In his name we pray. Thank you for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible.org.